How do you level things up for mom and dad in a care facility? And that facility doesn't care. You might be surprised. Stay tuned. Welcome to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional and financial strain does not have to be your M.O. Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for and while keeping our feet solid on the ground. Hang tight. There is a better road ahead. Hey, everybody. It's Nancy May. Yep, from Doing It Best with Elder Care Success. And this is the second half of the show in how to take care of mom and dad or how to keep an eye on them when you think that, quite frankly, it's time to call in the attorneys. You might be surprised what kind of solutions we share with you here with my guest, Lauren Ellerman, who's an attorney with a firm of Firth and Ellerman, and she's an expert in medical malpractice with a specialty in focus on assisted and long-term care facilities and the, the whole housing community of what goes on, not just between the care facilities, but also the rehab facilities, the nursing homes, the aid agencies, everything that works to hopefully help us coordinate the proper care and well-being or livelihoods at the end of this time of life of our parents to make sure that they are happy and healthy as long as they possibly can be and don't have pain, are not abused, or anything that can fall into that trap of the, oh my God, how did this happen to us scenario. She's one of the top elder care attorneys out there who's advocating for us and for our parents. She is a critical resource that we all need to know about. So hang tight. It's part two of Caring for Mom and Dad, when you need to call in the heavy-duty guns and the attorneys. So the point I want to get back to is how to be an advocate when you have to rely on third-party care, because so many of us do. Not a lot of us can leave our lives and our families to be that 24-hour caregiver. And so many of us have to rely on everything from adult daycare to skilled care to assisted living to memory care you know, to home health. And there are ways to make sure that if anyone in that system is going to get better care, it's your loved one. And I'd like to share those ways briefly. Please do. Number one, be so organized. Have a three ring spiral notebook in your purse or in your car at all times and write everything down. If it's not in writing, it didn't happen. If you told nurse- It's a legal document when you write it and date it and put a time on it. That's right. And right. I went to visit my mom on September 23rd at you know 4.15 PM and I found that her call light was on and she was unchanged. And I went to talk to, don't write a nurse, say nurse Sally. Sally, who is a Caucasian woman, you know, who is the charge nurse. And I specifically told Sally X and Sally told me why. And then the next day, follow up with Sally. So you have to treat it like like your private investigator. It's your job to get to the root of all the bad care, solve it, and be organized. They will also notice that you're doing this. Make notes Correct. in front of them. Yep. Because if they know that you're going to be the, the PIT or the pain in the you know what, Yep. then they may not like it and they be they may make your life uncomfortable, but they will give attention to your loved one. Agreed. My mom told every single home health nurse who showed up in her home, my daughter's a medical malpractice attorney. <laughs> and I used to say, mom, that's not going to get you better care. And she'd say, well, they don't know that. You know, be an advocate for your loved one. But this is really important. Don't be an adversarial advocate. Yep. There is a difference between being organized and being an advocate and being a jerk. 
And I get calls all the time from people that say, well, I told that charge nurse that I was going to sue him. Well, why did you do that? I mean, was it just out of you were paralyzed and you didn't know what else to say? These people are caring for your loved one. You have put your loved one's care in their hands. At some point, you trusted them. You're not moving your loved one out of their care, so you're continuing to trust them. Don't be a jerk. And also, don't blame the nurse who, you know, there's 30 people on the floor and she didn't get to your mom. Blame the system that allowed that to happen. Blame the corporation that is taking profits away and not hiring new nurses. If the home health nurse, if you're paying $22 an hour, guess what she's making? 10 bucks an hour. Yeah, I'd say thank you, right? There was one gal who used to clean the rooms that my parents were in another place. And she was a, she, she was a kid. You know, she was sweet. And I could see that she was over-raveled. Yep. And one time I was down visiting, but I knew that she loved these big sparkly earrings. So I found like a bunch of earrings for her. And I just gave them to her and I said, I know you love these. And she was so amazed. Yeah. She said, well, we're not supposed to accept things. I said, well, nobody needs to know. <laughs> that, be human, be kind. I mean, I think I think being generous with the people who are you know, taking time away from their families to care for your family is really important. And so that's my second bit of advice. Be organized and put it in writing. But number two, be kind. Yeah. Even when the bad thing happens, even when you're filled with anger, and I know I know, anger is a natural side of grief. We've all been there. But don't take it out on the person getting paid $12 an hour to clean the toilets in the nursing home, right? Just don't. And there are ways to be communicative that's not hostile or adversarial. And so I really do recommend, you know, kill them with kindness and helpfulness. And here's the other thing. Don't be afraid to rip your loved one out of a facility if they are doing a bad job. Absolutely. I heard the other day of one adult daughter who had moved their mom three times in 18 months. And we did it multiple times. And we were told yep. by the, the nurse, who I refers to as Nurse Ratchet to this day, who very conveniently lost all their medical records when we took them out. Mm-hmm. She told us that mom and dad would die within, within less than three months of leaving because that's what happens. Do not be afraid to, you're right, to move them because chances are they won't die and they may actually get better care. They will probably get better care because you're involved in it. Yeah, well, that's just it. I mean, it's like any other consumer choice. If you're unsatisfied and you have gone to the top and you've spoken to the top, do the next step, which is get them out of there. Because people will call me all the time and say, you know, this facility's caused harm to my mom and I want to hold them accountable. And I'll say, well, where's your mom now? And they'll say, in the facility. Yeah. And I'll say, why? And they'll say, well, because it's closest to my house. And I'll say, nope, get them out. So that's important. The other thing that I really recommend is be selective when you choose the facility in the first place. People make this choice in an emergency situation without any thought. And you and I, Nancy, talked about this. Typically what happens is your loved one's in the hospital. The social worker comes to you and says, your mom's going to be discharged tomorrow. The doctor recommends rehab. And here are the four facilities with beds. Okay, well, did my hospital just recommend this facility? Is that a good housekeeping seal of approval for this facility? And the answer is, heck no, it's not. The bad facilities that have empty beds fax the hospital social workers every morning how many beds they have. And so all the social worker is is being a water carrier. These are the facilities with beds. She's not saying it's a good facility. She's not saying they have you know great staffing ratios. She's not saying it's nonprofit. And she's not saying your mom's going to get good care. So don't take that as a recommendation. 
do the work yourself. Go on medicare.gov if it's skilled care or rehab for a nursing home. And if it's assisted living, that means there's not an acute medical condition. That means you should have time to plan and choose appropriately. And one thing I do want to say before I forget, one problem with assisted living, in addition to the fact it's not healthcare and it pretends to be, if your loved one is private pay, if they're what I call little golden tickets, they may need actual medical care and the assisted living facility is not going to want to get rid of them because they are little money makers. Yep. And so a lot of times when I'm brought in, brought in for litigation against assisted living, it's because that patient has exceeded the level of care by statute that an assisted living facility can provide. The person really needs nursing home care, but the facility never told the family because they didn't want to lose the six, eight, ten, thirty thousand dollars. Or they want to move them to memory care at a higher fee, just because. Let's talk about memory care. You're, you're told to, or you're separating your parent. I mean, we went through it ourselves. So they're absolutely not going to do that. We're memory care is a crock. Memory care is just a different unit with a different sign out front and a locked door. It's most states. It's no different level of care. Um, a, a plaintiff lawyer friend of mine today shared that in North Carolina, there is a little different staffing requirement and training requirement in a memory care unit than there is in a memory certified unit. But otherwise, it's just assisted living with a fancy your door. So if you're paying for more. Yeah, it looks like a neighborhood and mom and dad feel good for five minutes because it looks like the old neighborhood. And it's, what do they say, putting lipstick on the pig or window dressing, right? And here's another real issue with that transition from assisted living into memory care. And I have litigated this. I'm litigating it now. Families trust that the institutional knowledge went with the patient from assisted living into memory care because it's on the same block, right? It's in the same building. But what we're finding is the written documentation about what Mr. Smith's needs were did not make it to memory care. And so I'm seeing a ton of horrible things happen within the first two weeks of memory care because the records didn't transfer, the nurses didn't communicate, and nobody knew that Mr. Smith had to have his food cut up. Nobody knew that Mr. Smith couldn't get to the bathroom alone. Mm. Nobody knew that he would wake up at four in the morning and go sit in the activity room and fell because no one bothered to transfer the records or talk during the transfer. And that's a really important time to make sure that you are being organized and sitting down and making sure everything's in the record, making sure all the care, all the meds, all the needs transferred. Oh, one of the things that, that I'll share is we talked a little bit about drugging people up in care facilities. Yeah. And one thing that has come to my attention louder than ever through a, a friend who does work in one of these facilities right now. And she said, Nancy, what do I do? I think it's horrific is fentanyl patches that are going on now. Drugs, fentanyl is, is something that we hear from Michael Jackson's death and a number of others. And it's not quite the same, but a fentanyl patch is typically used as a way to keep people asleep or hallucinating so that they feel that they're home and relaxed and calm and, and a doped up person who sleeps all the time and just sits there and drools on themselves. I'm sorry to be so, so graphic about it, but it's, they're easier to care for than somebody who is agitated or has anxiety or is getting up and walking around and wants to be with others or is communicative and, and wants to have conversations. So, You're right. and it doesn't have to be fentanyl. Yeah. It could be something as simple as over the counter 
Benadryl that's given to them, and you may not know about it. It may not be put on their yep. records at some time. So, so one thing it, that you make a really good point, and chemical restraints is what we call. That's the term of art that we call it in long-term care litigation and in long-term I call care. It and BS. it's been a problem for as long. <laughs> yeah, as long as I've been doing this, that's it's been a problem. You know, Seroquel has a black box warning on it. Haldol has a black box warning on it. People have been using antipsychotics to dope elderly patients with dementia and Alzheimer's for years. Because it is a lot easier to take care of a sleeping patient than one who is up and walking and agitated and needs to be redirected. And we've been told as family that this is the way to help them and alleviate alleviate their pain. And this will make their life better because they'll be happy. Not necessarily the case. We don't right. know. I mean, there is there is always a time and a place for when you get to palliative care and you need that, that patch or you need that morphine or, or whatever. But you do find chemical restraints being used. Now, a couple little side notes um, that we, it's important to talk about. The doctors who are the medical directors of these assisted living facilities and nursing homes are not employees of the assisted living facilities or nursing homes. They're usually employees of their own third-party geriatric care company. And so you may have a doctor who's been assigned or a nurse practitioner or a PA, a whole other issue we'll talk about in a minute, but to 10 nursing homes. So there's a hundred patients in each nursing home. They have a thousand patients they're supposed to keep track of. Impossible. Just give them another patch and another pill, right? Right. So what happens is the nurse faxes Dr. Smith a letter that says, Miss Ellerman is agitated. Do I have permission to give her Seroquel? And Dr. Smith, who knows nothing about Miss Ellerman because he has a thousand patients and he's never met her and he's never looked at her record without any opportunity to look at the record to examine whether or not any of her other meds contradict, indicate it. Is she demented? Does she have Alzheimer's? Or is she just pissed off because she's in a nursing home? Use my language. Yep. Says, okay, give her Seroquel. Well, but she doesn't have a psychiatric diagnosis, right? So that's what happens. Again, the system is so stressed because profits are so attainable when it's a stressed system that there's all these little broken parts of the system. And when the doctor who's ordering these chemical restraints didn't physically examine the patient, doesn't know the other meds that they're on, doesn't know the contraindications, it's really easy for the nurses to say to a doctor, this person needs a fentanyl patch, they're in pain, and then I don't have to take care of them at 4 a.m. Because the nurse is looking at them all the time. The families don't necessarily always understand or know what the medications their loved ones are on. So, right. And that's real important that if they are in a care facility, that you have access to those medical, those true medical records, true medical both records. from the doctor, who's the outside medical care provider that they recommend. You typically do not have your own doctor. It's the care doctor or the, the care facility, you know, doctor yep. that's there that or that's assigned to your parent. You have to drop you, their doctor typically. We, you don't in many cases. You don't right? have to. No, but they say they say you do, right? They say yeah. you have to have the. That's a lot. And, and so there, it's going to make life easier. You don't have to go to the doctors. Oh, right. You don't. They're coming to you, Correct. and and the list goes on. But it is important if you see changes or you just ask for the records once a month, what are the pharmaceuticals that they're taking? What are their prescription drugs? And talk to an outside pharmacist th that you know. Yep. Uh, I mean, just take the, the list to them and say, what's going on? What do I need to worry about? And then when you do visit, go to the nurse who's distributing the meds and said, I want a full list because you may not be able to trust the person that you're getting those records from either. Well, the, the med tech who's distributing the, the medication probably doesn't have authority to give you the list either. I go to the charge nurse and I think that's really important. So if you are someone's medical power of attorney or your guardian or responsible party, meaning you sign them in, which is nothing more than it's not really a legal 
assignment, it's just the nursing home wants to bill somebody. So if you agree to be the responsible party, you should have access to all of that. Also, you're going to be invited to care plan meetings. The federal government requires that the facility have care plan meetings about your loved one. Not everybody. Yeah, but we were never invited to care plan meetings. They didn't even know that they existed in some cases. If it's skilled care, they have to happen. If it's assisted living, they don't. This was an assisted, you know, independent care facility. They don't have them in assisted living, but skilled care, they have to have them. You're invited, go. And guess what? It's post-COVID. If you can't physically take off work to be in the facility for a care plan meeting, they have a cell phone. They can call you. (laughs) It's no problem. But, But find out. When was the last time the physician physically examined my mom? Who is the physician? Who's the PA? I'd like their phone number, please, and call them. You have a right to communicate directly with the PA, nurse practitioner, and doctor. Do it. So here's 30 seconds of horror. One thing, they may resist you because we went through this. And when I called the doctor or the PA's mm-hmm. office that who was affiliated with a doctor, by the way, the, the PA had such a bad case of stuttering that he couldn't get in. You know, the words took five minutes to say hello out, which was amazing that somebody like that, he, he may have been a competent professional, just couldn't communicate well with an older person who may not have the patience and also who had dementia and hearing issues. Yeah. That's just not a good setup or situation. But also the doctor's office would not give me the medical records when I wanted them, even though I was the medical power of attorney and and handled all that that work. Mm -hmm. And between the care facility, the independent and assisted living care and the doctor's office, they disappeared. So what I was going to say is we as consumers of healthcare, like about my own health, I'm usually only told about 10% of what's in the medical record, right? And as an advocate yep. for my mom, I was I want to speak to the hospitalist. I want to know what's the diagnosis, what's the lab, what's the the bug, what does the culture say? I was an advocate always asking. But every time my mom was hospitalized, I would drop off on our way out of the building what's called a high-tech request and that's a federal law under the Affordable Care Act that gives family members the right to request their own medical records very reasonably and very quickly. So I would make sure that when we were leaving the hospital, I dropped off my medical record request and I would say, I can come pick them up whenever. I'll be here tomorrow. I'll be here the next day. One of the last major hospitalizations my mom had, we got the discharge papers and poor woman had been ventilated because of respiratory, um, basically distress. And the discharge papers said you were here for respiratory problems. Well, no. Yeah, we knew that. I requested the records, 2000 pages of records I picked up on day three. Okay, my mom had now congestive heart failure. No one told us that. She now had a fluid mm. overload graded to the congestive heart failure and a collapsed lung. No one told us that. And the discharge papers the didn't discharge say that. The discharge papers right? didn't say that because the poor nurse who was asked to pr- press print on the discharge papers didn't go have time to go through the chart and to, to print all that. Which meant, though, that neither my mom's pulmonologist nor her cardiologist were alerted to the hospitalization because the facility records didn't communicate with them that she'd been diagnosed with a collapsed lung and with congestive heart failure. So I'm then faxing those records to the doctors, asking everybody to get on a call saying, listen, she's having breathing problems. Is this heart or pulmonary? Well, I don't know. But if I hadn't done that, she would have been dead in a week. And now is that my job? It doesn't matter if it's my job. We know this is the level of advocacy that we have to provide so that our loved ones don't suffer, so that mistakes aren't made. So rather than making a moral judgment on whether the system is broken to allow this, just do the work to protect your loved one. Take control. Don't trust. Yeah, they say the educated consumer is the best customer. 
not just for those that we're caring for, but all honesty for for the doctors and the nurses who do care that are part of that system that want to do well. Not everybody wants to do well, but I do believe that at least there's a good percentage, a majority of doctors and nurses who want to do well for those who were there and show that they're committed to somebody that they love. And again, be kind. (laughs) You know, I didn't call the hospital and berate them for, you know, this information. But when I got the survey, I was very, I was very honest about, you know, you sent a woman home who'd been on a ventilator and here's what her discharge record said. I then requested the records and here was the true story. What went wrong? You know, please try to remedy this. People do go into healthcare because they care. Just like I went into law because I care. Not every person who calls me feels like I care, but you know, let's do our best for our loved ones to help the system work the best for them. There's a way to get answers and be firm by being professional when you handle things. And yes, I understand that emotion gets in the way many times. So you get, you do get bitchy and angry about it at times. Yep. And we all understand that when we are under that level of stress, but sometimes just taking a deep breath and say, wait a second. Yeah. Agreed. You know, yep. let me, let me put on that position of authority while still being willing to listen and have my, make sure that my voice is heard for that individual that I'm standing up for. It will make a huge difference versus just complaining about something. But it's not easy to do when you're under incredible stress and you see the pain that somebody that you love is under. So just in addition to that. You know, I used to say all the time to the physicians, I'd say, forgive me, I know you know more about collapsed lungs than anybody, but I know my mom better than anybody. And I'm telling you that she can't breathe. I'm telling you that she's wheezing. I'm telling you that when I transfer her, there's an additional level of pain. I'm telling you that she's not sleeping. So you can honestly be on a team with the healthcare providers. That's the best thing to be. Let's be Sherlock Holmes together. Let's figure this out together. I'm here to support you to take care of my loved one. And that's much better. This next discussion is really talking about the whole litigation area, because we talked a little bit about that and the shell of the business versus a a family run operation who really is involved in a smaller care facility or or it could be a larger one for a mission driven type of purpose yep. which is and they don't have to be not for profit but you know not for profit is typically mission driven and again it it depends upon the quality of the leadership of that institution versus just always how they're working and operating. But I wanted to talk about when there is a case that you think you have Mm -hmm. and how decisions are made, juries, the ageism in the industry when it, it comes down to it that we don't necessarily understand. And ageism, just so that you all understand who are listening, starts at about age 60 to 65 in society. And it can be even younger depending upon the illness or severity of illness of an individual and their ability to contribute to society. And that's, I have to also understand, it's the value of the individual in society of how much of this is taken into account. And please, I'm not an attorney, but Lauren, I will leave this up to you to sort of take this ball forward on this point. Sure. So the point is, is a good one. Most people believe that a lawsuit can really effectuate change. I've gotten to the point now where the first question I ask, if I do believe there was negligent care, not just bad care, but negligent care, is what is your goal in contacting an attorney? What do you hope I can do for you? If a family member says, I want you to shut them down, I say, well, a lawsuit can't do that. A lawsuit, no way can shut down a facility. Well, I want that woman fired. Lawsuit can't do that either. I want the local news to write about the story. No lawsuit is ever going to get your local news to care. 
So then I say, what's your, you know, what, what are you really hoping I can do for you? Well, I don't want this to happen to someone else. Okay. All a civil lawsuit can do is take money from one party and give it to another. And the problem is the law is so nuanced in wrongful death, especially cases, but also in serious personal injury. I'll give you a real quick example, Nancy. If my mom was in home health and home health dropped my mom and she broke her neck and she died, that's what's called a wrongful death case. You were you know, legally required to provide her care. You did not meet that standard of care. And as a result, this person fractured a, a break and she died. A jury is not going to be super excited about awarding me money, me daughter money, when I wasn't the one caring for my mom. And that is part of the ageism. It's also just part of judgment in general. So there might be one member of that jury that says, you know, she's trying to make a buck off her dead mother. Why didn't she quit her job and take care of her dead mother? Oof, yeah. I mean, and I get that. We're, I mean, I'm very judgy. I'll never forget before I had my daughter, I used to say, I'm only going to feed her organic food. And she'll never see TV until she's 12 years old, right? We love to plan how it is we're going to be in that situation. And then reality hits. <laughs> right, until we're in it. And we all say, my loved one's never going to a nursing home. I would never do that to my mom. My mom will never be in home health. We all like to judge that family and say, I wouldn't have done that. So it's not just ageism. It's just normal human judgment. So I have to convince a jury of seven strangers unanimously in Virginia that I'm entitled to money because my mom suffered? One plus one doesn't equal two there. Why did you let your mom suffer? Why didn't you intervene? Why didn't you love and care for her enough, right? Why did you let, why weren't you there? And you know, that poor home health nurse, and, and the jury isn't gonna know about insurance. The jury, so they're gonna think, are you really suing a woman who makes $20 an hour for money? She's not gonna be able to give you that money. Now, hopefully someone in the jury is sophisticated enough to know that, Home Healthcare Roanoke LLC has an insurance policy and that's who's paying this money. But I can't tell the jury about insurance. I can't tell the jury about the 27 other complaints I had with the home healthcare company and that they promised me they could take care of my mom or that my mom said to me, I don't want you to give up your life to take care of me. None of that comes in in these cases. So litigation is almost never going to solve the problem. Litigation is sometimes one of the tools in the toolkit but it's never going to solve the problem. And so that's why of the 60 people who call me a month, I can't help them. I can't, I can't reach the goals that they want. I have a gentleman who calls me at least two, three times a year who's been the caregiver for his disabled brother for the last 30 years. Because his brother's on Medicaid, I've never recommended litigation because if you sue, if you sue on behalf of someone who's on Medicaid, and you get more than $10,750 in their name, they lose their Medicaid. Yeah. That's one month of nursing home care for him. So what would a lawsuit do? Nothing, nothing. It would actually lose the one benefit he needs to survive. And yes, there's some trusts and things that we can set up. So I mean, that that is a blanket true statement on the law and there are ways around you know, Medicaid getting all that money back. But why would I file a suit for that gentleman when he's going to lose the one benefit he needs? It's understanding the bigger picture on everything that you're trying to do and how it impacts the long-term care and health of somebody that you're taking care of. Their health may be declined, but the ability to financially care for them may disappear. So that's right. Unless you have the money, the deep pockets to take care of it yourself, an extra ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars a month for 
how many years, plus your own care eventually, you may want to reconsider that. I'm 43 and I must have been 30 at the time I went to a financial planner and said, I need to have enough money that I don't go into a nursing home and my child doesn't have to take care of me. They start to laugh. And he looked at me and he, you know, he put it in his little machine and and he came back and said, okay, so you're going to need between 1.4 and $3 million in cash at retirement to make sure that that happens. Probably closer to three by the time you get ready to retire. Right, exactly. (laughs) $20 an hour goes pretty quick. $20, $25, even even $50 an hour in some cases here now today versus what it might be in another 40, 50 years. So that's another story. Also, so we talked a little bit about juries, but also understanding that in the healthcare system, somebody who is age 87 just unfortunately, in the scope of society, does not have the same value as somebody who may be physically harmed due to poor care at the age of 25 or even oh, exactly. 35 or 45. Exactly. So, you know, if you're in a car accident tomorrow, Nancy, and it's so bad that you're never able to work again, when I go to court for that injured person, I include lost wages as part of their damages, or I include the loss of enjoyment of life as part of their damages, or the fact that now they can't walk their daughter down the aisle at her wedding as part of their damages, because we have a level of value during our working years. So a 30-year-old who suffered that kind of loss is going to have a much bigger possible benefit from a lawsuit than an 87-year-old. And every state actually has these tables of how long your life expectancy is. So if an 87-year-old is killed by bad care in a nursing home, the only thing I'm allowed to claim in damages is the difference between their life and their life expectancy. Oh, and that could be pretty low. Right. So if the state of Virginia says that that person was going to die at 89, So then I go into the jury and I say, you know, yes, she was 87, but she was going to have two more Christmases. Please give her family compensation for those two more Christmases that they lost. Well, what's that? I mean, it's so hard to put money on these very intangible and personal. I don't even know how to say it sometimes. So the system really, the legal system is really not built for this kind of remedy. It's not built for this kind of harm. And so what happens is, these cases are not worth much. And I say that in air quotes, I wish you could see me because of all of these other factors, which is why litigation is not always the answer. Ooh, you know, I, it's, 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 I'm trying not to hyperventilate on the other end sometimes, right? <laughs> we, we do the best that we can. And the good news is that there are people like you, Lauren, who are out there that help to educate the rest of us who are new to the care, care world, because this is not something that you're trained for. And typically, although there's tons of information out there through organizations like AARP, the information that you will get is a thousand miles wide and about an inch deep. And it's digging into to the layers of soil where we really see what's happening and, and understanding that. So that's really critical to know. And unfortunately, there are books on how to be pregnant <laughs> and care for a child for the rest of your life and school and education. But we also tend to be taught to care for children through their adult lives more so than we were able, that we're taught to care for ourselves. I I tell people all the time, you know, how many college tours did you go on before you sent your kid away for four years, right? It's just four years. And yet how many nursing home tours did you do when you agreed to care for your loved one? The answer is zero. And so we do really, I mean, there is a way to work. The system is broken. Um, I wish I knew how to fix the system. I don't. But I do know how to help people navigate the broken system. And if, it, if you are the hands-on caregiver, it is a full-time job. 
if your loved one is receiving care, it's still a part-time job for you. It is not anything less than 20 hours a week of organization, of advocacy, of love, of care, of patience, of deep digs all the time. If we operate under the, well, the facility will handle it, then there will always be a bad result. I mean, there are ways to have um, a better quality of life as a caregiver if you're organized. Mm -hmm. If you work to be as professional as possible, and you use the term professional in a way that you don't need to be the CEO of, of a Fortune 500 company, but it's just it's a demeanor in how you handle yourself. And it may sound that I'm almost trying to belittle people by saying, you know, act like an adult. And I don't mean to be that way, but it's incredibly difficult, as I said earlier, to do so when you yourself are under stress. It is. I just think it's a golden rule. Treat treat those caregivers as you would want to be treated. It'll be easier on your own heart and your own life. And, and know that, yes, there will be sleepless nights and there are ways to handle that as well. If you are there for the people that are caring for your mom and dad or a spouse, then they will make your life easier as long as you can compartmentalize in a way that is very, I don't say de- separate yourself from it, but in a very linear, organized way. And, and sometimes it's not linear because that's just the way life Never life linear. is. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, and use a team of people. It's incredible to have lawyers that you can count on, not just litigators, but attorneys who understand trusts and estates and what's going on in the healthcare system Agreed. to have financial advisors to say, this is what I need to do. Can we afford to do this? I know it's in the bank account, but let's plan long-term plus your accountant and your CPA and I'm dealing with this as somebody right now as well. And just saying this is how you need to work your team. It is. And let me say this too. I mean, when you're talking about an accountant and a CPA, you're talking about the top 10%. You're talking about people of means. Most of the people who call me are not that top 10%. Most of the people who call me who have to rely on third-party care are the women who are nurses themselves or teachers themselves. And so they don't have accountants and estate attorneys and that kind of thing. My advice is free and applies to everyone. And that is be the organized person, be the advocate. You don't have to have attorneys and accountants to do that. You just don't. You just have to have a heart. And and quite frankly, if you're worried about money or how the money is being managed, you can go into your bank and talk to a bank representative, not the teller, but talk to a bank manager and just say, this is what I'm dealing with. Can you help me? That's free advice. Mm -hmm. So there is a way to get financial advice and help and support. Plus, there are, there are other organizations that do this for free because they are not for profits yeah. to do so as well. And it's, it's just amazing how much time a community organization that may have an accountant or not for profit will sit down with you and be of support. So uh, veterans organizations can mm-hmm. do this if you've got a, a spouse or a partner or a sure. husband who's a veteran or mom and dad. Yeah. The one thing I will say real quick, the one lawyer you may want to consult is a Medicaid spend down lawyer. Oh yeah. If right your front. loved one is got a chronic medical condition, MS, Parkinson's, cancer, can't walk, amputation, diabetes. If your loved one is diabetic and you're looking at damp, you know, um, amputations and that kind of thing, call a Medicaid spend down attorney as soon as possible because most states have a look back that's five to seven years. And so the minute your loved one goes into a nursing home, it's way too late to think about who owns the car or who owns the house or can I put the house in someone else's name. And everybody just assumes I don't have to think about that until I really have to think about it. No, no, no. Medicaid Mm -hmm. spend down attorneys are something you prepare for. You don't react. So even if you can't afford a will, not everybody needs a will. They really don't. 
I mean, if you've been married to the same person for 20 years and you have two kids, you don't need a will, but you might need a Medicaid spend down attorney if you want your loved one to stay in the home. So that's the one attorney I would uh, pay some money for. What I do is contingency based. I don't bill people. Even this free advice that I give you, I give to the general public all day, every day for free. So, But you are the state of Virginia, not across the country. So that's- Correct. But there are versions of me everywhere. I could give you 20 names in you know Florida and Texas and everywhere. Also, this your state Medicaid agency, they are very helpful too. Don't be afraid to reach out and talk to them well in advance. I had a dear friend who dealt with this with her husband and she was able to, this is my term, probably not the correct technical term, was she was able to financially divorce her husband so that she did not become financially destitute correct. and separate the, and it took, she did it herself and the state was incredibly helpful mm-hmm. in making sure that she did this in a way that she did not become, as I said, financially destitute and lose her home. And, and there's a way to do that. There is. But it does take time and effort if you're not going to go directly. And that may be a first step just to say, what do I do? Who do you go? Where do you recommend? If you hear the word dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, MS, that should be an immediate conversation with your partner or your parent. What's this going to look like in 10 years? What's this going to look like in five years? And that's when you start the conversation. And a Medicaid spend down attorney is not cheating the government. They are protecting and separating your assets so that you still can have an asset. And your loved one with that chronic health care condition can get access to that long-term care, which, by the way, we know they're going to need because we haven't cured Parkinson's. We haven't cured Alzheimer's. No. Dementia is not curable. It's just not. So... Yeah, and and understand that care facilities or or rehab facilities, medical facilities have a certain percentage of beds that are devoted to Medicaid. They don't need to take you in over a private paid person. So if they have all their beds allotted, this is where you hear the marketing team saying, well, we don't have room for you typically. And private pay is different. And when you have a private pay facility, not everybody understands that when you run out of money, they can ask you to leave. Of course they can. Yeah. And now you're our, where do you go? Because there is, there's not a penny left to their name. You can't afford it. You know, I'm not trying to scare people. We're just trying to put a little dose of reality on this because it's important to, it, you know, it's be forewarned type of uh, information. And I think that's critical. Yeah. You can't control everything and you can't plan everything, but you can plan some things. <laughs> right. So. Now, one one last notice is we talked a little bit about rehab facilities and nursing facilities that you might go after a hospitalization. Mm-hmm. However, you do not need to go to the, any of those facilities yeah. unless you cannot handle that yourself or with a team of aides and support at home. And, Correct. And getting the right, knowing that you've got the right equipment at home, there's ways to get it pretty easily because Medicaid or Medicare will take care of a lot of that yep. or percentage of it. But this is my personal belief that that caring for somebody in their home or yours, no matter how difficult it is, does give, I think, a different level of care to the individual in getting, if not physically better, mentally better, right? Even if they do have dementia. Right. No, I I don't disagree. I think you're 100% correct. And again, I earlier stated the statistics are right now, on average, a nursing home patient is only getting between one and three hours of care a day in the nursing home. So people say, well, I couldn't take mom home for rehab because she needed all that care. It's not a lot of care. It's like a little smidge of care. And if you were at home for one to three hours a day, 
you were providing more care than the nursing home. So I made a promise to my mom that she would never go in a rehab facility of any form or function. And I was able to fulfill that promise because the minute she was admitted to the hospital, every single time I would say, my mother has multiple sclerosis, physical therapy will not make her better. We have a team at home. And so when she is discharged, it will be to the home. So let me have a conversation with the social worker as to what benchmarks, treatment you think we're going to need. And starting day one, I'd say, okay, does she need a pick line? Let's get home health in there to make sure she gets those antibiotics. Does she need steroids? Does she need oxygen? We're going to work it out. And I was always successful. Yeah, I, w- I will let you know that the hospital will fight you. Yeah, sure. Tooth and nail sure. in taking them home. And they will try everything they can to convince you that you can't do this. In some cases, hospitals have relationships with these other care facilities. So that's part and parcel of it. But it's important to know that do not let them make you feel guilty if this nope. is what you want to do. No. And and I just always smiled and said, I've made her a promise. And, th- you know, this is what we're going to do. And a couple of times I had to threaten to check her out AMA. <laughs> and it always worked out well. You actually can check somebody out against doctor's orders. Of course. Which happens. And sometimes they don't need to be there. You're not a doctor, but you know your loved one better than the than the doctors do it sometimes. So I think we've covered a lot in this in, in these two episodes. I think we have too, Nancy. I sure appreciate the invitation. And you know, if if anyone has comments in the show notes or, you know, contact Nancy and I'm happy to chime back in on some of the issues. I will put Lauren's information and contact points in the show notes among other things. And we are going to have her business partner another time talking about how to actually check out a doctor. That's right. How to research. And make sure they're the right ones for you. So there's a, I don't want to say spoiler alert, but because it's, we haven't spoiled anything yet, but it's a uh, stay tuned. There's That's more. Great. That's right. Yep. You'll <laughs> love having Dan on. He's a great guy. Great. Thank you, Lauren. This has been a delight. I really appreciate your help and, and everything that you're doing for, for those of us who are caring for mom and dad and spouse and, and anybody else in between. Nancy, thank you so much. Bye-bye. This show is sponsored by Caremanity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies, a step-by-step guide before, during, and after. For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com. All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity LLC. All rights reserved. Caremanity LLC.